when there are conflicts of interest, females evolve strategies of choice. And when I say choice, I mean at multiple levels. Our bodies are screening out many of our bad eggs. Our bodies are screening out embryos that are developmentally abnormal. Our bodies evolve. Yeah. So we have all these systems in place to help us not let that happen. My friends, today we are talking with the amazing Dina Amara, PhD, who is an evolutionary geneticist, author, and teacher. She earned a bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley, a master's degree from NYU, and a PhD from Yale. No big deal. Just a few names you might've heard of. She currently serves as a senior scientist at the Buck Institute Center for Reproductive Longevity and Equality, a freaking men. In her upcoming book, A Brief History of the Female Body, Dina draws on her experience as a biologist and her experience as a mother of four, just let that settle in for a second, to explore the mysteries of the female body through an evolutionary lens. Dina, I am so excited to dive into this with you. Oh, thank you. Where I thought we could begin is, as I was reading through your book, it struck me, years ago, I was at a TEDx women event in Los Angeles, and Barbara Streisand was one of the presenters. And she was there talking about women and heart attacks. And this was years ago, it's probably 10 years ago, maybe more. And one of the things I remember from her speech was that, There was so little understanding of how heart attacks manifest in women because all the research had been done on basically dudes, probably white ones. So what I wanted to start with is how radical is it to even be thinking about, asking about, writing about evolution from the perspective of the woman's body? Yeah. I mean, you bring up so many important and interesting questions there. I think fortunately we're at this like historic, I think, shift in the way that we're thinking about women's health Mm -hmm. and women's bodies and women's biology. And honestly, I mean, this is what I have studied for most of my career and the timing happens to work out with the release of my book. It wasn't intentional. It's just, this is what I happened to have studied. Yeah. And during COVID, I had some moments while I was living. While you were raising your four children. (laughs) Jesus, God, Dina. (laughs) Deal. After soccer, I'll just go write a book. NBD. I had some moments and (laughs) I don't know. It was just, I was feeling like I needed to get it out. So it's really just, it was serendipity because I think, We are at this moment right now where women are demanding more knowledge, knowledge about basic things like how does a heart attack manifest differently in a woman versus a man? Things like endometriosis or autoimmune disorders, which affect women primarily. If you're only studying white dudes and you're only studying male mice, how are you ever going to learn about those things? Yeah. Right. Which allows the medical system to conveniently just diagnose them in these imprecise buckets of like a question mark disorder. I'm going to just call it yada yada instead of having the baseline curiosity supported by research to actually be more specific about these things. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's wonderful that we're seeing this shift, Mm -hmm. but we are really lagging behind. I mean, I think there is so much 
I mentioned endometriosis. Mm -hmm. I think it affects 10% of women. And when woman who's suffering with it comes to their doctor and says, I've got all these symptoms. It takes forever for them to figure out that she has endometriosis. And then when you figure it out, there's not much that you can do. I think the conversations about menopause are Mm -hmm. was such a taboo topic before, but now you've got women like Michelle Obama and Oprah talking about it, but that's only part of it. Right. I mean, I think it's great that we're more comfortable talking about these things as a society, but you know, it really comes down to research dollars, right? Like we need the money to study these things that are just lagging so far behind where we should be. My hope is that they're realizing that the menopausal women have money disposed, like money to spend. And the more that they can fund things that help us, I'm hoping that there's some sort of capitalist loop that can kick in and get us the funding we need. But just to back up for a second, in your introduction, you talk about evolution because this is about the evolution of the human, of the female body. You talk about how we need to look at evolution through a slightly bigger lens, right? It's not just that we were competing against other creatures or that like talk about our sort of stereotypical understanding of what quote unquote evolution is and how we might expand that to really understand what's going on with the human body or the female body. I mean, I can answer this in many different ways. I think a people don't tend to think about evolution or it's like a really basic image in their head of like a cheetah chasing a, you know, I mean, it's really limited and it's very Flintstones-esque. Yes, exactly. I think some people, when you say evolution, they think about primates, which Mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. I think understanding chimpanzees and understanding monkeys and the animals that are most closely related to us that teaches us a lot about why and how our bodies evolved the way they did. So I think that is wonderful. My book actually takes you way, way deeper because many aspects of our biology are, I mean, they evolved hundreds and hundreds of millions of years ago. And evolution is always building on what's already there. So humans are amazing beings. Our brains just are so creative and flexible and we have transformed our globe Mm -hmm. physically, technologically. We've just Mm -hmm. created such amazing things. But at the end of the day, and this isn't something that people think about or like to think about because we think of themselves as really unique, which we are, Mm -hmm. but everything is built on something deeper. I'm really fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by the deep history. So asking the simple question, why are there females to begin with? If you want to tackle that question, you've got to go back hundreds of millions of years. Our reproductive systems are ancient. Now, that doesn't mean that they function exactly the way that a female fish's reproductive system operates, but there are components of a fish reproductive system that is very similar to ours. Mm. Ours is based on this really ancient system. Mm. And I think to understand our systems today, we have to look to the past. I mean, that's really what my book is about. Like we're so puzzled by so many aspects of our biology. Well, to understand it, you got to understand the layering. Like Mm. how did our bodies evolve over 
hundreds of millions of years to mm. understand well, why do we go through menopause? Why do we have yeah. periods? I mean, it's this yeah. very, very long history. The thing that I keep thinking about is there seems to be like baked into our species as women, this really unfortunate paradox, right? Where we are the gate through which life comes literally without us. There is, I mean, up until now, who knows what the future holds who with knows? AI and all the shit that's coming down the pike, <laughs> but it is through us that life comes, right? We are tough as hell because we can do all these things. We grow these humans. We bring them into the world. We're unbelievable as a creature. We're unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And also it is true that we have consciousness and mental capacity and intellectual capacity equal to, if not greater than occasionally, our male <laughs> counterparts. Mm -hmm. And also it is true that historically, at least for the past little while, women have been kept weaker and more fragile. Mm -hmm. Speak to me from an evolutionary lens about the role of patriarchy and keeping women, labeling them as hysterical instead of listening to what they, you know, putting them. I mean, we have such a long history of taking these very resilient, very creative, very powerful bodies that are women mm -hmm. and relegating them to a jail in yeah. society and gaslighting us into thinking we're so fragile. Talk about yep. that. Okay. Another really interesting, obviously controversial topic, again, from the perspective of an evolutionary biologist, I'm always comparing humans to other animals. When you look at other animals, man, mothers are badass. Okay. <laughs> the things that mothers have to do and the decisions that they're making, and I mean, they're truly amazing what our bodies can go through. And I think if you look to other species, what you see, and this is true in humans too, is that when there are males and females, there are conflicts of interest. That's interesting. <laughs> there are conflicts of interest. So there are some constraints on the female body. We typically, well, by definition, we're making the bigger gametes or sex cells. So we're making an egg or multiple eggs each egg is like many millions of times larger than one sperm, right? And that just that in and of itself puts some constraints on basically how we reproduce. We're investing so much more energy into reproduction, into reproducing every single child. A male is just like releasing billions of sperm per ejaculation, He's right? just making it rain. Meanwhile, we're He's over making here making it a Picasso. Exactly. And so that setup, it basically sets up this system where there are conflicts of interest. And in many species, you'll look at the males and they're often trying to coerce the females to mate with them. In some species and many birds, they're trying to show off to oh, the females. Those are my favorite videos on TikTok is like the birds showing off. To I mean, isn't it just as I was writing the book, it was the same for me. Like I became obsessed with all the shenanigans that males engage in to impress the ladies, right? Yes. So males have many different strategies to be successful, to bear their offspring they're convincing the women, they're convincing yeah. the females in their species or coercing them or whatever it is. Every species, it's obviously slightly different. And I think in humans, one 
of the ways that that manifests is in males sort of trying to, it's basically this conflict over who's going to have the kids, who's going to take care of them. Mm -hmm. The males basically want to get their sperm out and then let the women or the females, depending on what species you're talking about, raise the babies. And the ones who do that more effectively in the past were more successful. They had more children and then those traits were propagated. So I think this patriarchy is just one manifestation of this conflict between males and females that exists in many species. Mm. It's, no, you take care of the kids. You do all the work. Now, humans are different in that males are involved in parenting. And that's one- Especially now. Yes. I think we see it more now, but I think it's, you see it in most human cultures, some degree of dads being involved. And when I say involved, it might be financial, it might be emotional investment in their kids, whatever it is. Like Mm -hmm. that's when you compare humans to other primates, Mm. that's a really unique thing. Not totally unique, but unique in humans. That's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. It's like baked into the system of females relating to males and vice versa. Well, let me interject. Also baked into the system. And I've actually thought about this and I wrote an op-ed about this. Baked into the system is females fighting back and saying, I'm going to do it my way. And the females who did that or who do that are more successful, again, in an evolutionary sense. Yeah, I was going to say, tell me about that. What do you mean? What are the examples that you think of? When you think I mean, that. the basic example, and again, this is on my mind because of Dobbs, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, reproductive choice. So the choice of who to reproduce with, when to reproduce, how many offspring to have, that is so baked into our systems. I can't stress it enough. Like that into is our systems, as, meaning into women's bodies, into f- the bodies of females, not human females, but mammal females, bird feet. I mean, we're talking about a really, really ancient system of choice. It's as old as there being females and males. And this Wait, is all you're blowing my mind. <laughs> I didn't know that. What do you mean by that? I don't understand. I mean, when there are conflicts of interest, females evolve strategies of choice. And when I say choice, I mean at multiple levels. So at the level of which egg to ovulate. So we know, I mean, we have evidence that our bodies are screening out many of our bad eggs. Our bodies are screening out embryos that are developmentally abnormal. So you've probably heard Most women know that many, many pregnancies are lost super early, like so early that unless you're tracking and taking a pregnancy test every day, you might not know that you're pregnant. Our bodies evolve, not just human bodies. This is a trait in all mammals, maybe elaborated on in humans. We don't need to get into that now, but all female mammals have this system where they can basically sense in a very young embryo, whether it's good or not, whether it's going to make it. I mean, it. one of the worst things that a female mammal does is invest many, many months in a pregnancy or even the baby's born and then many, many months in lactation. And then that baby doesn't make it, right? Mm-hmm. Because then mm-hmm. again, from the evolutionary perspective, they've wasted all that time and energy yeah, yeah. in an offspring that won't make it. Yeah. So we have all these systems in place to help us not let that happen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So 
screen out as best we can embryos that are probably not going to make it. Oh my gosh, the literature on mate choice. So there are just wild stories in nature, wild examples of females evolving behaviors, even anatomy to maintain their freedom of choice. So I'll give you an example because it's just so, this is really mind blowing. There's two examples of this in ducks and then also in some dolphins. And this is like a physical manifestation of that conflict that I was just describing and also supporting this idea that females want choice. So we'll use the dolphin because people think of dolphins as like really smart and cool and sweet and friendly. Male dolphins, bottlenose dolphins are nasty and they will gang rape the females. (laughs) The females want to choose their mates. This is not just true in bottlenose dolphins. Females in all species want to choose their mates. Why? Because the male that they choose, it basically part of the equation of which babies are going to make it. So if they choose a male who's a dud or isn't the strongest, isn't the biggest, for whatever criteria she's choosing based on, like she wants to choose. So the bottlenose dolphins, they don't want to be raped, but they aren't actually able to prevent that when it's like a group of males trying to inseminate the female. And so what she's done over millions of years is that the shape of her vagina has evolved a really bizarre, unusual shape. Okay. So basically... The vagina is not this, in a bottlenose dolphin, the vagina is not this like straight tube. That makes sense if you want to make conception as easy as possible. There's all these dead ends and flaps and folds that make it really hard for the sperm to make it to the egg. Wow. (laughs) And the thought, and we see this in ducks too. In ducks, I'll get to that in a second. It's even like crazier. The thought is that, If she is being raped by a male whom she doesn't want to be the father of her offspring, she will manipulate her body in such a way that the sperm goes to one of the dead ends, not to one of her eggs. Ducks is crazy. (laughs) Ducks. I mean, it's even crazier. The male, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to get the direction right, but what's important is that they're oriented the opposite direction. So the male has a corkscrew I can't say this. <laughs> if you're about to tell me that a duck's penis is cork corkscrew shaped, I'm not going to even know what to do with that. So the male duck has a corkscrew shaped penis no oriented way. in one direction. The female has a corkscrew shaped vagina, but it's oriented the other direction. So talk about anatomy that doesn't make any sense. Because basically the two genital structures are oriented in the wrong direction. Talk about another species that's, you know, these guys are really nasty to the females. And so- I'm never going to look at ducks the same way. All these rapists running around. I know, I know. (laughs) So going back to your bigger question, like the shape of the genitals shows you the lengths that a female will go (laughs) to retain her freedom of choice. She wants to choose the male. 
And so the females in the past in ducks that retained that control just a little bit better than other females who didn't have a vagina shaped in that way, they did better because then they had babies that were more attractive to females in the next generation or who did better than the females. And, you know, it's all about who is doing better and what traits are allowing them to do that. Females want choice. And the choice again is like at so many different levels, choice of male, choice of sperm. That's another thing that I didn't mention. Like as sperm are going through our reproductive tracts, our bodies are choosing the ones that they want over what else is there. So female preference isn't just a nice idea born of feminism. It is literally baked into the systems of biology that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years. Yes. I so can don't tell- fucking come for my reproductive <laughs> rights. That's what I'm saying. Let me pull up for a second here because the thing that's really trippy to think about, maybe this is too out there, but when you think about what success looks like from an evolutionary perspective. We're looking at things like how do we reproduce as many successful creatures as possible? And it's a volume play, it seems like maybe. What happens to populations when the population is at that catastrophic tipping point of overpopulation? I mean, we've got coming up on, what is it? Like eight, eight and a half billion people on planet earth. It's starting to get a little bit dicey. I'm assuming that evolution can't respond quickly enough to make any significant changes based on this problem of overpopulation. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I do talk a lot about this in my book, this mismatch between our evolved biology and modern society. Our bodies evolved at a time when there were fewer people on the planet than there are now. There are just so many examples of that. And I mean, I've never thought about it in this context, but in general, biology evolves much more like genetics. That takes thousands, millions of years for our genes to evolve and for populations to evolve genetically. Which is Um, good because if not, we would all be walking around with like hunch necks because of how much we look at our phones. So perhaps that's for the best. Yeah. I mean, we are walking around with hunch necks, but yes, that's not baked in our DNA, but that's part of the problem, right? Our bodies are not meant to be hunched over our phones and computers that were meant to be outside walking around out in the sunshine, right? So that's an example of a mismatch where our bodies are meant to be doing one thing, but we're actually doing this other thing with our bodies. So generally bodies evolve much, 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 much more slowly than societies and culture. I mean, that is one unique thing about humans is just how quickly culture evolves, but we can't expect our genes to be adapting to those very rapid cultural yeah. changes. Yeah. A really good example of this and it's something that I find fascinating is you read about this every day that obesity is on the rise and a huge segment of Americans are obese or overweight. And it's interesting to think about this from sort of the evolutionary perspective. There are many, many, many factors involved in this. One of them is we evolved a taste for sweet things. We evolved a taste for fatty things. And when these pleasure, I find pleasure to be one of the coolest phenomenon, like biologically, like our brains, 
That's coming next. Our brains <laughs> basically, and this is just not just in humans, this is in all species. Like our brains play this trick on us so that we do the things that are supposedly good for us. Sex feels good because we need to have sex in order to make babies, right? Mm -hmm. Eating tastes good because we need to be motivated to go and gather the berries or hunt the animal to be able to survive long enough to have more babies, right? So our brains evolve this attraction to certain things. And back when our ancestors were evolving in a very, very different context, there was no... I don't know. You you didn't go to the market. You had to go walk around and find your food. Mm -hmm. You had to hunt the animal if you wanted to eat meat. Back then, it was a good thing that fat and sugar tasted good because those things were good for our bodies back then. But Mm -hmm. now... All of these things are available, not for everyone in the world, but you know, for many of us, these things are just readily available. And it's not just that they're available, it's that food manufacturers have figured this out about our brains, right? They figured out what tastes good. And so they just load our food with those things that taste good. And I we don't a stand pot- a chance in the face. We of don't it. stand a chance. I mean, yeah. I, I made a pasta dish last night that I hadn't made in a while. And I took my first bite and man, it pasta tastes so it just good. You up. I agree. It tastes so good. And so that's yeah. why I hate that diet culture makes it seem like a moral failing. Not a moral failing. We don't stand a chance. We are rats in a freaking cage in this experiment with fats and, and sweets, right? They taste good for a reason. Yeah. And I think one of the broader points in my book is it helps to understand that. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that isn't making, that doesn't make me make drastically different choices in my life, but it just makes me feel, I don't know. I just don't feel as stressed out about it. Like it's something yeah. I understand and maybe it helps me make slightly better choices, but I'm just, as I say in the book, like I, it just makes me more generous in my opinions of people, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> or even of yourself when you meet Of myself. Choices. Let's get back to that issue of pleasure, because this is the question I have always wanted to ask someone like you. And I'm sure this will be the first and only, hopefully not the last, but probably the first and only time I will actually use this word on my podcast. But (laughs) talk about the evolutionary role of the clitoris, because listen, (laughs) people, that thing is responsible for orgasm, pleasure, has no role that I can see in making babies. It's just there for fun, which to me means that God designed us to experience exquisite pleasure. But talk about (laughs) from an evolutionary lens, tell us the story of the clitoris. Okay. Well, this is one of my favorite topics. Oh, excellent. This isn't actually something I have researched, but my PhD advisor has dug deep into the evolution of the clitoris and orgasm in females. So that's sort of how I got interested in the subject. So first of all, the clitoris is ancient. Again, going back to this idea that humans have that like we're totally unique. No, we think that it may be gosh, 300 million years old. Okay. So it's a structure that's sort of homologous or analogous to the penis. Right. Okay. And we know that the penis is quite ancient, probably 300 million years old. So it's this 
structure that develops in embryos and the in males and females in the same place, same tissues. But then when a developing baby starts making hormones, sex hormones, so in males, it's testosterone and females, it's really a lack of testosterone, but she's also making estrogen and exposed to estrogen from her mother. This like lump that you see in a very, very early embryo takes different paths in a male. You've got this larger external structure and in females, actually the clitoris is quite large, but most of it is underneath the skin. So it's like all tucked away in the pelvis. And so really the only external part is the glands of the clitoris, which is just a tiny part of like this the whole kind of structure. This is reminding me of those dolphin women evolving yeah. <laughs> to hide their goods back behind all the things. Like there's some <laughs> echoes here, Dina. Anyway, continue. Sorry. So the clitoris and the penis are very ancient. And if you want to take one of the most heated topics in evolutionary biology, this is it. There have historically been two different arguments on the function of the clitoris and orgasm in human females. One argument is, well, it's really just a structure in females that it's there because males need to have an orgasm to reproduce. So in other words, it's just there in women by accident, right? Because- that sounds like happy horse shit to me, sister. <laughs> Let's hear what so the it, other option is. <laughs> well, this idea, it's really interesting. If you're, for any listeners that are interested in this, there was this whole book written about the messed up science on this topic. And it's called The Case of the Female Orgasm, written by a philosopher of science. Really, really interesting And what she, Elizabeth Lloyd is the name of the author. And what she says in the book is that this explanation that the clitoris is there just sort of by accident, it really pissed off a lot of feminists because they just find it so offensive that the structure exists. It sort of devalues the importance of the structure in women. And she argues, well, no, that's not the case. It's actually kind of cool that it doesn't have its own function in human women because it's free of any constraints. For example, a male, human male can really only have one orgasm at a time, whereas Mm -hmm. a woman, you know, there are no constraints on that. And there is evidence that the orgasm in human females brings a lot more pleasure than in other animals. So Mm -hmm. Mm, interesting. Interesting. I have no background in science or any ground to stand on, but it would seem to me that if the roles were reversed and men were like, gosh, why do we have this clitoris? They would be looking for reasons to support the notion that it plays an absolutely transcendently important role in their anatomy. It would not occur to them to see it as a, we don't know. It's just there. I mean, what's really interesting about what we just said is that other camp of people who have chimed in on the function of the female orgasm, historically, they were all male. And actually, they were trying very hard to say no. The orgasm, kind of the opposite of what you're saying, they actually were arguing that the orgasm in women must have a purpose. Otherwise, why would it be there? The problem is, that they never came up with a solid enough explanation because, I mean, as all women know, the female orgasm, A, like 
many women don't have orgasms during vaginal sex. Yeah. Most women, it's through masturbation. And even those who are able to achieve an orgasm during intercourse, it doesn't happen every time, right? And so when a trait is really important, like for your reproductive success, you would expect it to be a little bit more consistent. Yeah. It makes you wonder if there are other factors that evolution is taking into consideration around the definition of success. Maybe there are other dimensions to, I don't know. That's fascinating. So Dina, what is the prevailing wisdom then right now around the purpose of it? Is it still just a question mark? It's a question mark. I mentioned my PhD advisor, his take, and I, I agree with him. And this goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning, like we, our bodies have this very long evolutionary history. And so what you see with many traits is that they had a function a long time ago, and then maybe that function changed, Mm. or maybe that function was lost because our bodies evolved this other way of doing something. You know, you see these relics of the clitoris, for example, he argues was there for female ovulation. Okay. So really quickly, basically in some female animals, the clitoris is in the vagina and a female ovulates during copulation. So you're having intercourse with a male that this is probably a good explanation for a species that where all the animals are very far away from each other. Right. So it's hard to find someone to mate with. Yeah. And so in those cases, you want to save your eggs for when there's actually a male around to fertilize the egg. Yeah. And so in many species, including in some today, like rabbits, their bodies ovulate when there's a male there. And actually we don't know exactly what the signal is, but my Gunter Wagner, my PhD advisor, He's done all kinds of studies now that really support this idea that the clitoris and the orgasm in females a long time ago, and this, you still see this trait in some animals today. It was there to signal to the brain, okay, it's time to release an egg. Oh, I see. I see. I see. I see. So in that circumstance, there's so few opportunities to find a male to partner with. They needed a system, the theory goes, that would trigger the eggs to come down. It's like a door. It's like a ring system, a doorbell that would be like, hey, we got somebody here. Drop an egg, girl. Exactly. And that's what the clitoris and the orgasm. That was the function. And fascinating. there's really interesting comparisons. Hormonally, what's happening during an orgasm, a lot of the hormones that are released during an orgasm are the same hormones in human women that are released during ovulation. So there is this weird connection. It's an echo. It's like, it's, you know, a hint to probably what was happening in our past. I mean, the coolest experiment that Gunter did was he treated (laughs) rabbits. So rabbits ovulate during copulation. He treated rabbits with an antidepressant, which in women tends to inhibit orgasms. And it inhibited ovulation in these rabbits. That is so fascinating. (laughs) So it was sort of like experimental evidence of this connection between ovulation and- I'm always fascinated by how scientists structure these studies to get at that one thing they're trying to prove. Like what a fascinating way to establish the connection by just messing with that dial of- orgasm inhibiting through an antidepressant. Like totally. that's such a trip. It's a trip. 
the research dollars for studying orgasms are not flow and forth, let me tell you. So I'm actually curious how he got the money to do that experiment. I think that might be changing. I think as women become more powerful as buyers, as women, we love our orgasms. Why wouldn't (laughs) we want to invest in science that helps us understand them better? Yeah. But taking a step back for a second, I know just in reading your book, you talk about your process of being a mother, of being pregnant, of carrying these babies. And I don't know if you're in perimenopause or menopause or what your deal is in terms of where you are on the spectrum, but talk about your curiosity and what made you start to question. Like when I've had three babies, like it never once occurred to me to ask why I breastfeed or ask why I am pregnant for 9.25 months. Like talk to us about that a little bit. So... I decided to write this book when I was pregnant with my first baby. So the timing of that was really interesting. I was pregnant with my first son, but I was also studying for my qualifying exams for my PhD. So this is a time when you're deciding on your research project and you're studying like mad, learning everything you can about this new topic. And my PhD was on the evolution of pregnancy. So I studied the evolution of the tissues in a mom on how they had to change in order to support a pregnancy inside your body. The first mammals laid eggs. So the question that I was really interested in is, well, how do we go from an egg-laying mammal to an animal that can grow our babies to a much later point in their development inside our own bodies? So that was a humongous question for me. Really, I'm an evolutionary biologist who happened to study the female reproductive system. The more general question I'm interested in is how do bodies evolve? How do they change? What needs to happen at the level of our DNA in order for those big changes in bodies to evolve? I was studying pregnancy for my qualifying exam and going through that first pregnancy and I think most women who go through that first pregnancy, maybe they're not asking like, why is my body doing this? But they are asking, why does this hurt so much? Why do I feel the way I'm feeling? Why do I have to worry about all these things that could happen? Preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, like not to mention the debilitating nausea that we have to hide from everybody because we're not allowed to tell anybody we're pregnant till three months. Totally. The freaking nightmare. It's a nightmare. And so... The thing that I was most blown away by, and I could spend hours talking about it, which we're not going to do now, but just to give you a teaser, in our society today, mothers are assumed to be these selfless beings that give everything to our children. We need to sacrifice ourselves and put our own needs on hold. And that's bullshit. (laughs) Oh, When an evolutionary biologist (laughs) tells us that the suffering sacrificial martyr archetype is bullshit, we we can believe it. (laughs) Why is it bullshit? Preach, Dina. I mean, again, you can see this in all species. This is not just a human specific phenomenon. Mothers and their babies are not genetically identical. So I'm going to give you a little bit of theory here. So obviously a mom wants her baby to make it, but the ones who are the most successful, the ones who were the most successful in the past 
we're lo- always looking around at the context. Is this the right time to have a baby? Should I have another baby? Should I hold off and not have any babies? Mothers evolved to be extremely flexible and strategic. I was just going to say strategic. strategic. And so the mind blowing thing is, again, we grow up thinking that mothers should be these selfless beings, but genetically, because we're not identical to each one of our kids. There is this here, I'm going to say the word again, this conflict of interest between moms and their babies. Now there's also these shared interests. We want our babies to make it and we love our babies and we're flooded with feel good hormones and we're nursing our babies. We're flooded with all that stuff of the head, top of their heads. Oh my God. Sniff them up our nose. Totally. And those things evolves for a reason. Those feelings, those emotions are all hormone driven and they exist for a reason, which is that it maximizes the chance that baby will succeed, that we will continue caring for that baby. Because if we didn't have any of those good feelings, why would we do it? I mean, it's different for humans, obviously, because Mm -hmm. we are Mm -hmm. cognitively and technologically, like we can do more than other animals, but the sacrifice thing, the sacrifice. Yeah. So we're not genetically identical to our kids. And so there is this I don't want to call it this conflicting relationship. It's this push-pull thing over evolutionary timescales where moms, and you really see this during pregnancy, which in humans is like so bizarre, like some of the things that our bodies go through. I think one of the most interesting examples is our hormone levels, probably why we have such bad morning sickness. Moms and their babies are producing hormones in these obscenely high concentrations moms are producing insulin, like in the second half of their pregnancy, insulin levels are so high, but so is her blood sugar. It's like insulin is super high at the same time that it's like not working though. It's like working the worst, you know, at any other point during pregnancy. And it's because the baby is dumping hormones into her bloodstream that is manipulating her to keep her glucose levels elevated because there is this conflict of interest over food, basically. Resources. Over resources. Yeah. So during pregnancy, a mom and her baby are fighting for the, a limited amount of resources. Yeah. And so there is this push and pull that you see over evolutionary timescales, but it's this tug of war, like ratchets up, 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 up over evolutionary time. Mm. So that now mom and baby are producing huge huge amounts of hormones that don't make any sense because <laughs> they're not really working <laughs> or they're working, but you could produce a tiny amount. And without that conflict, that makes sense. But with the conflict, we can understand some of the puzzling aspects of pregnancy. Also, it seems to me what's so interesting about the story of the way our bodies have evolved. And you know me, I'm trying to assert story where perhaps there is none, Dina. So you let me know. Yeah. But it seems that our story is a story of ambivalence towards these other creatures upon which we are interdependent, right? Yeah. It's like we're in this ambivalent, deeply ambivalent relationship with the males that we share our body our reproductive futures with. We're ambivalent about these creatures that we grow inside of our bodies. We're having to be strategic, but we lack the power and agency to really execute on that innate strategic nature. It's a very interesting story of ambivalence. I mean, is that a fair statement? 
I think it's a fair statement. I mean, I have one of my chapters is called the conflicted mother, but I could have easily also said the ambivalent mother. You've got these conflicting emotions. I'm obsessed with my children. Yes. But I also want to be away from them. (laughs) That's exactly right. And then when you go away from them, you're thinking about them. And when you're with them, you're like, I just want to be alone with with a book. I remember there was this, I don't know if you remember that Michael Cunningham book that got made into a movie, The Hours. And in the the book, that mother is just like, I just need to check into a hotel room with my book. And it's like, I remember seeing that with my best friend and she and I were like, are we going to be those mothers? And the fact is, Dina, there is a huge part of me that is absolutely that mother. I think we all are, but we are afraid to talk about it. Because again, back to this patriarchal society we live in, we are raised assuming that mothers look a certain way. But when you look at the broader animal kingdom, what you see is mothers are strategic, mothers are flexible, mothers are mean sometimes. I mean, it's all there and it's there in humans too. I mean, humans Mm -hmm. have a very interesting, the history of motherhood in our species is full of unsavory things. (laughs) Yeah. Unsavory characters who are a lot of times just at the mercy of the time and the place and the resources that they're born into. Absolutely. And that is part of the story too. I mean, I think the decisions we make as mothers in humans and also in other species are so dependent on the broader context. What kind of support system do you have? Yeah. Yeah. How much food is there? How ready is my body able to reproduce? One of the most eye-opening experiences I've had in my skin suit since birth is the experience of the way I perceive reality pre-perimenopause. And now I'm fully menopausal and you can correct me. And I ask you to correct me that when I was in childbearing years, I was incredibly good at going along with the program. Mm -hmm. I was, yes, woman. Yes. Yes. I'll make it work. Yes. I'll make it work. Yes. I'll make it work. The older I get, and I really think this is tied to my estrogen levels going Mm -hmm. down, which is part of the whole menopausal journey. Mm -hmm. My capacity to agree to something that I don't believe is the right choice has been worn down to nothing. It's like, interesting. it's like metal on metal. There's no brake pads anymore. <laughs> I know I'm not the first person to notice this. I feel like I've talked to this with other people. Part of the gift of aging as a woman is the scales seem to be falling from my eyes around things that I once tolerated are no longer even on the table anymore. There's a reason they kind of labeled us as crones as we got older. We got grouchier. We got less willing to comply with the norms and the Mm -hmm. niceties. What is that? Why do women sort of get wiser and meaner and more like, I'm not fucking doing that anymore? (laughs) Like, is there something there? So I think there could be something there. What I can say is that estrogen is a very powerful hormone. I mean, many hormones are powerful and we know that they influence the brain. And there's this whole new field of mostly women scientists studying the effects of these sex hormones, progesterone, estrogen, on the structure of the brain, activity in the brain. And what they're seeing is that absolutely the presence of a hormone or the lack thereof 
can actually change what's happening in your brain. It can make some parts of the brain smaller or bigger or more active or that so feels very think, real to me. I mean, we know that estrogen during your reproductive years is a powerful hormone. It is in other species. It is in women. The days when your estrogen levels are high leading up to ovulation, we behave differently than in at what other way. T- How would you like if you had to characterize, cartoonize the power of estrogen? Because in culture, like in slang, if somebody's talking about estrogen, it's usually dismissive. It's usually like, oh, the room's full of estrogen. Like, uh. if you had to reclaim that and say, no, 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 let me better characterize the power of estrogen. Like, <laughs> what are some of the things that come to mind? I mean, what comes to mind is sex, right? Women are more interested in sex mid-cycle. That doesn't mean that at other points of their cycle, they're not interested in sex, but there's definitely something about estrogen. And I mean, it's the time when your estrogen levels are high, it's the time that you should be having sex if the goal were to be to reproduce. And I think it's one of the reasons that postmenopausal women are less interested in sex. I mean, and I won't say that is true for every woman, but I think on average, women's interest in sex goes down after their estrogen levels plummet. There's this really funny study in white crowned sparrows. This is funny. So I'll tell you it briefly. When their estrogen levels are high and they hear a male sing the song, they're interested. They're like, yes, like I want that one. But if she hears the male sing a song at a different point in her cycle, when her estrogen levels are not high, she attacks him. <laughs> it's like, get away from me. I want to have nothing to do with you. You are so stupid. I don't like your dance. Amazing. (laughs) So that is absolutely, you know what this is reminding me of? I remember there was this like Bugs Bunny cartoon back in the day and it was this chicken coop of hens and they had like the Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra rooster that would come and sing to them. And as he was singing, they were just like dropping eggs all over the farm. Totally. They must have been in a phase of high estrogen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But is that the only thing estrogen does is make us more interested? No, no. What else does it do? I mean, it's really like a wonderful hormone. It's good for our bodies. It's why post-menopause, we're at risk for so many diseases and disorders. You know, a risk of Alzheimer's goes up. A risk for cardiovascular disease goes way up. And osteoporosis too, right? Isn't estrogen actually important for bone? Density? Absolutely. So it is a wonderful hormone involved in our interest in sex and all of that. And obviously it's one of the hormones that's keeping our cycles going, right? But it's also good for our bodies. I mean, during COVID, there were studies showing that estrogen is one of the reasons that females have stronger immune systems than men. Wait, and females have stronger immune systems than men? Yes. We so have why more- are we so disproportionately affected with autoimmune disorders? That is the reason. So the reason that we get autoimmune disorders are basically our immune systems attacking our own tissues by mistake, right? Oh, And there's a lot of ideas on why autoimmune disorders are a recent phenomenon. So our recent, they're totally recent. Our ancestors were not getting autoimmune disorders. And if you're interested in this topic, read the chapter on health and disease in my book, because I go into the prevailing hypothesis on what changed. Give us the quick In a nutshell, our ancestors were always infected with parasitic worms. 
we basically lived with them. We lived with worms in our intestines. And so as our immune systems were evolving in our ancestors, we evolved to always be fighting these worms, keeping them in check. I mean, it was, again, this back and forth evolution between the worms and our immune systems. And so most of us in the world are not infected with parasitic worms now. And so we've removed this partner of ours. And so now our immune systems are like, wait, (laughs) I need to be fighting something. And so they attack our own body tissues, whether it's in the brain or our gut. And why does it affect women? Well, women have more robust immune systems and there's a lot on that's another topic. Why? What but, a trip. I was not expecting that theory. Yes. That is, it's a trip. I, and there's lots of evidence now supporting it. And now scientists are studying. I mean, there were a whole set of clinical trials where they actually injected people with worms to see if their autoimmune symptoms would get better. Infecting someone with a parasitic worm like introduces a whole other problem. I was just like, gonna say now got a, a worm trip. infection. <laughs> you gotta be in bad shape if you're like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll be in that study. That's cool. So now they're like trying to figure out well, what are worms making, like molecules that they're making, and we, could oh, we then introduce that into yeah. some, an MS patient? Yeah, because you know? that's what MS is. It's just a big old autoimmune freak out. Yes. Fascinating. Oh my God, mm-hmm. Dina, I could talk to you for the next 25,000 trillion years. <laughs> and talking to you has made me realize is so many of us are just moving around in a vac- in an information vacuum. We're coming up with our own theories, our own reasons for things, our yeah. own ideas about why this, why that. And what I love about your work is that there's actually a good body of science that can answer some of this stuff in a way that makes us feel more connected to other species, more connected to our environment, the world. It's powerful stuff, Dina. Thank you for making this book. Everybody get on it, pre-order it. When does the book come out? The book, it's called A Brief History of the Female Body, comes out August 15th. You can buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you like to buy books. And I'm excited. I'm really excited for women to read it. I feel like there's this craving for knowledge. And I mean, we're getting that knowledge in different ways. What I'm offering is some deep knowledge, some real scientific versus just rhetorical. For those listening, the greatest thing we can do for books like this to make sure they do as well as possible so that more interest is available for women and studying our systems is pre-order the book, review it, talk to your friends about it, Let's make it go viral because the stuff should be taught in school and it's not. (laughs) So huge thank you, Dina, and keep doing your amazing work. Thank you, Bronwyn, for having me. That was so much fun. Hey, if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest podcast episodes delivered hot off the press or share this with someone who could use it. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe and get on that newsletter. You get fresh tips every Monday morning to set you up for the week. And on the last Saturday of the month, you'll get a short email with my favorite things that I'm into. If you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing hard conversations, check out 
my No Enemy Conversation course. It's at noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and it is self-paced and it is all there for you. Lastly, if your company or organization needs a high voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I am your gal. I have two dozen different fantastic keynote topics and you and I, we can make something killer happen. So shoot me a note and let's do it. That's Bronwyn at BronwynCommunications.com. Take care and shine on. We need your light.